0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. For any visitors to Citizens Church, welcome here. We're glad that you're with us. We are uh, kind of in the middle of a series on part one of Genesis. Uh, It's too big of a book to do in one sitting, so we've broken it up into four sections. And if you've been with us from early in January, you'll know that we've uh, come along through the narrative and we have been looking and seeing at what God has been doing through the whole process of creation. We saw that God is just this amazing, creative being who, in his Trinitarian love, created the world and all the wonder and the splendor, the great things that we still enjoy about the world. And then he created people, Adam and Eve. We talked about the, just the wonder of people uh, created in his image, both of equal value and dignity to God and meant to be in relationship with him. And then we saw how sin came into the world through Satan and uh, all of his schemes and his his desires to destroy what God is doing, and Adam and Eve both entered, and sin entered into the world. And now as we look at the text here, we're in chapter 6, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 6 in Genesis or look at it on your phone or whatever, and what we've seen along the way, and we, we weren't even able to look at it at all, but we see this increase in sin and the effects of sin on a, you know, on a global scale. So that um, from the, the death of an animal in the woods, to the difficulty of working the field and doing any kind of job, to the death of people... As the ultimate consequence of sin, we see that its tentacles have just gone out and have wreaked havoc and Now we come to another story, and, and each of these stories is they're pretty familiar, even to people who aren't christians they're they're stories that are out there, you know, creation narrative and fall narrative. People may not know all the details, but some of these, you know, they're out there and people know about them. Your neighbors who aren't Christians might, like, have pieces of these stories. And we come here now to the story of Noah and the flood, another story that is well known to people around the world. There's even, um, in many cultures, there's many types of flood narratives that are out there. So this is like well known around the globe as a story that has happened and that has existed. And when we come to this story, there might be a few different types of thoughts or positions even before we get into the details of it. You may think that um, the story of the ark and all the details is like a child's story. You know, it, they should be handling it over in that wing over there, right? Where all the kids are. Maybe you even grew up in Sunday school with Flanagraph and all that. And, like, you know, Noah's there, all the animals. So it's like this childish narrative that, that maybe has some good morals for the kids to hang on to. It's, it sells books and that kind of stuff. That's kind of where you're categorizing it, okay? Another perspective may be that it's just total myth. This is just a story. It's part of like the legends of chapters one through eleven. There's just too many things now that we are in this kind of post-Enlightenment scientific age. There's too many things to actually believe in the myth of Noah. Again, maybe wonderful story to, to kind of grab some morals from and you know learn some. Uh, lessons on it, okay? That might be you as well. I I understand that, okay? And then there's another category of people, and maybe this is some of you. You've got the shirts, okay? You've got the bumper stickers, you get the emails all about in-depth study on Noah and the ark and the flood, maybe even like creation stuff. You are like all in on this. This is like your bread and butter, okay? You don't have to raise your hand, but you, there might be some of you in there. For other people, it's end time stuff. There's all kinds of topics that people really get into. And maybe this is your one. Like you're, you're waiting for me to get into all the details. I just want to start with a bit of uh, a warning for all of us, okay? Myself included. That when we come to this kind of story, something that's so well known, that is either beloved or loathed, however you want to view it. It's not to take the story too lightly and just kind of throw it out, and not to go too deep into it so that you get lost in the weeds of it. We're actually warned in Scripture a a number of times, especially in the New Testament, that there is a potential for topics to become bigger than they need to be, and for you to kind of swim in the details of them and be lost in it. Paul addresses this in one of his letters to Timothy, where there's, a, there's like a rumor going around that the resurrection had already happened, so that the resurrection from the end of time has already happened. And people were getting caught up in this, talking about all the details, you know, everything around. They're just like in, just totally sold on this idea and Paul says, whoa, 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 you are getting lost in the details. And he actually says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. He, he's, this is his description of those people who are lost in the details. He says, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They're actually just so caught up in all the stuff that they're actually missing what the truth of the matter is. So when we come here to Genesis 6, the text itself is not trying to prove all the details of flood questions that you have, okay? Just like when we talked about the Genesis narrative, and I know people weren't happy about this, but we weren't going to talk about the dinosaurs, okay? I had a lot of comments about the dinosaurs after that sermon, okay? Where's the answers? This isn't just a cop-out, okay? Okay. The Genesis narrative here in chapter 6 specifically is not seeking to answer every question you have about floods. Here's what it is most primarily wanting us to think about. Okay, And and we're going to actually take this narrative in two parts. So next week we're going to finish it up because it's happening over about three chapters. But in this text here, what we are most meant to be thinking about is this, that you were made to be with God. You were made to be in relationship with God, and God will do whatever it takes to make that happen. That is what this text primarily wants us to think about, that you and I were made to be in relationship with God, and he is going to make sure that that has a possibility of happening in your life and in my life. And we're going to See, first of all, that he does this through a relationship with Noah, this person that we're introduced to. So we see that through Noah, God gives us a vision for our lives. And then we'll see that God actually brings judgment, which is part of the narrative here, and that God also has a promise for us. Okay? So that's where we're going to go the vision for our lives, God's judgment, and God's promise. So, Look at your text again. Look at your scriptures. Chapter 6, verse 9. I think this is, this is my opinion, okay? So this is opinion that I'm saying here. But I think this is actually the most important verse of the whole section of Noah's story. Okay, I know I'm putting a lot on this one verse, but this is it, okay? This is the focal point here. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Here we have this insight into this person that we don't know a lot about. We've got a few chapters here to kind of understand him as a person and what he did. He did a significant thing, but here we see that Noah walked with God. And the evidence that we have, from Noah's life, is that he listened to God when God spoke to him, and he obeyed God from what God told him to do. That's pretty much it. Noah listened to the word of God as it came to him, as he was in relationship with him, and then he did. He obeyed the word of God, all that God had asked him to do. And we see this multiple times in the text where it says, Noah did as the Lord commanded. He follows God's instructions. And in the process of doing that, of listening to God and following God's command, we see that it's described here as Noah walking with God. A description that we still kind of use today when we look at the New Testament and when we think of our own Christian lives. We use that kind of language like walking with God. Experiencing the Christian life through a relationship and through the circumstances of our lives. So let me put this out there for everyone to hear and to understand and to kind of get your mind around. You were made to walk with God. That's part of the reason why you're on planet Earth right now. You were created by God to walk with him, to know him. But, and we don't have the details here in Noah's life, but that does not just happen automatically. It doesn't just, if there's no light switch that you just, you know, I was there at Sunday morning again and I heard that sermon and boom, the light switch is on. I'm walking with God now. It's just that easy. It doesn't work that way. God has actually made it so that we are part of the process of entering in to get to know him and to enjoy his presence we walk with him. So I don't know if anybody has um, planned a, a trip, maybe a trip down to a warm place. Maybe some of you, you know, are going to a beach somewhere or, you, you know, you're going to Florida or maybe Cuba or I don't know where you're going. But uh, taking a trip somewhere, planning a trip, takes effort and takes like a little bit of foresight. You're not just going to very few people would be able to pull this off. Someone's going to be like, I know someone who did this. But none of us are just going to go like, Monday morning, I'm going to Cuba. Let's just do this. Come on, pack the kids up. We're going to go to the airport. Here we go. We'll just pull this whole thing together. We're going to make it happen in a day. It, we all know it does not work that way. It is planned out. It takes effort. And so when it comes to you and I walking with God, it actually takes some thought, it takes some planning, and it takes some effort. The challenge is that all of us have grown up in an age of technology, where everything is meant to be easier and easier and easier. So when we come to the idea of walking with God, we also think that this should be easy, it should be controllable, and it should be something that I should just be able to kind of get into. And this is just like, we, we've all kind of grown into this. Depending on your age, and I'll date myself a little bit here, when the, when the internet first came, when we used to call it the World Wide Web, okay, that's what we used to call it, the World Wide Web, you started by getting onto that through dial-up. Do a few of you remember dial-up? Where you would use this monstrosity of a computer, okay, and you would tell it to call a place, okay? Call the internet somewhere, and it would dial this number, and then you would wait, and if it was, like, available, you'd get on to the World Wide Web, and then you could do something. Who's remembering those days, right? Nobody wants to go back to them, but that was us, you know? We dialed onto it, and now we've come a long ways, and we're all thankful for that. Thank you to all the tech people, you know, who have progressed and brought us along to where we can just basically get online anywhere really quickly and really easy. Here's the problem. We think we can do this with our spiritual lives, and we think we can do this with our relationship with God. And listen, God is not trying to make this complicated for us, but God has made it so that we enter into a relationship with him through very deliberate steps. God will not force his way on us. In his love and in his foresight, he does not make us so that he just controls us. He's made it so that we can enter in, we can get to know him by walking and growing closer to him, which most often looks more like hard work, slow and out of our control. Is that a good sales pitch? Hard work, slow, and out of our control. But listen, in that process, in that process of over time, leaning into a relationship with God, practicing spiritual discipline, we actually experience what we see here in Noah's life is an experience of walking with God. A.W. Tozer says this, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. It was just like sweetness. Sweetness. Of enjoying a close relationship with God, and some of us think that's not possible. Some of us think that's just something that the ancients enjoyed. That's Noah, you know. That's long time ago. Those people could enter into that, or maybe that's like the 1800s, or maybe that was your grandma or grandpa because they had lots of time. They could, you know, spend time in the Word. They could pray. Let's just let's just say it here. They had the same amount of time that we had. The same minutes in a day. The same hours in a day. Some things about their lives were a lot harder than ours. You know what I'm talking about? Like the preparation for things and the work. So here we have, from this one little verse, a view for God's vision for his people. What Noah has experienced, this walking with God, living in obedience to God, is the vision for God and his people. This is the vision for your life, to live your days knowing God, experiencing him, present in all different spheres. So we look at Noah's life, and it's not all easy. From the narrative itself, we see that Noah is very much alone in his dedication to the Lord, even You know, there is a sense from the text, the the family ends up going into the ark, but there's very much a sense that Noah is alone in his dedication to the Lord. So maybe you experience this. You go to the work site, you go to your job, wherever it is, you're the only believer there. Or maybe you've got a family context where, man, there are very few or no believers in your family, and there you are. Plunked into that situation. Just like Noah, able to follow God, able to walk with God in the difficulty, in the hardship of life. That's where it actually counts. That's where we desperately need God's presence in our lives. And it's where God has designed us to be walking with him. But Noah also is is walking with God In a world that is surrounded by evil. That has just been like growing and growing and growing. So look at verse 11 and 12. A a description here of what's happening around Noah as he's walking with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So that's the context that Noah is living in where sin is growing, the corruption of people's hearts is increasing, Noah's alone in his dedication to the Lord, and God has him there. So we live in Canada in 2024. It may seem like you may even think like at the end of a day or at the end of a week, you're like, wow, everything's just going worse and worse and worse. And the temptation in that spiraling descent is... Just, it's easier to compromise you know it's just easier to kind of give in to some things. It's just getting harder and harder and harder as things descend and descend and descend. and into this very context, Noah is a, a example for us. He's not a perfect man. he's not God. It says that he's righteous, meaning that he, he makes right choices and it says that he followed God and he walked with him. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He knows that we aren't, but he's placed us into situations and we are able to, in those contexts, walk with him to experience this very kind of life that Noah is experiencing here. And so he's walking with God, he's living out the vision of God for his people, and then we come to where we see that God's judgment comes onto this like increasing sin that is existing in the world. So verse 13. <clears throat> verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. There's a lot of people that if they hear this story, And if they read verses like that, are very troubled by it. Like it's it's difficult to think through God who's created people, mankind, now wants to destroy them because of all the corruption that is in this world. And so here we see before us that God comes onto the scene and sees the corruption, sees the sin in people's lives, and is willing and also able to deal with it in a way that is good and right and just. God is the only one who can actually come on the scene and do that right. If it was up to us, um, the judgment would be skewed. The judgment would be loaded with all kinds of background and baggage. People are very vindictive and driven by anger when something has been done wrong to them. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you were following the news when the attack happened in Israel on October 7th, that you know deadly that massacre. And so in the heat of that, um, you could see on the news and on the commentary the pain and the rage that has kind of risen up as a result of that. Injustice. And now, like, human anger is coming as a result of it. And one uh, artist on Twitter said this. This is what he wrote on Twitter. But most of all, this is an Israeli artist, we want our people back more than ever, so the hostages. And we will do whatever it takes, literally anything. Nothing's off the table. Mercy is a foreign concept that has no application here. The opposite we want our army to attack with whatever the opposite of mercy is that's in the that's in the heat of pain and death actually happening to a person's family or to their people it's raw emotion, okay? And I went back this week to their Twitter account, and I saw this tweet has been deleted, okay? Because even them, they were like, after the fact, they're like, whoa, that was a little bit much, okay? They pulled it back. But this, this is us. When pain and suffering comes into our lives, this is just like the pure honesty of our hearts, that we want nothing close to mercy when pain has been done to us. And here we see, though, that God, who has been offended by sin as it's entered into the world, and now as sin is like increasing, God is able to come in and justly and in pure goodness exercise his judgment on the situation. And we may be able to find an answer that satisfies us. Some people are able to get an answer that they're like, I like that answer. Others, we could all have the greatest arguments for it and still wrestle with kind of the weight of it, but is it possible that God is able to see insights and have judgments into things that we can't even understand, we can't even enter into, to fully be satisfied by it? So here in this situation, the, the judgment is actually coming down from God, and yet at the same time, mercy is being shown and being exercised. Derek Kidner in his commentary, speaking about verses 7 and 8, but 7 and 8 essentially say the same thing that verse 13 says. He writes this, together the two verses, 7 and 8, show God's characteristic way with evil. To meet it, not with half measures, but with simultaneous extremes of judgment and salvation. That's how God deals with Sin when he sees it. He's not like us as humans who are just like, our first instinct is just like crush, destroy. No, God is holy. He's good. So judgment comes, good, right judgment, but at the same time, mercy through salvation. And so we see here in the text that God provides not only Noah with a task to do, but he provides an ark. Look at verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth, shall die. So we see here this extreme response of God to judge sin as he sees it justly, and then to provide a way out, to provide a way of salvation. He instructs Noah to build this huge craft. I and mean, we've got some details here of how he's supposed to do this. Like put this thing together so that people can enter into it and salvation is literally in the boat. That's going to be how you are saved. And 1 Peter also gives us a little bit of an insight that's not in the Genesis text. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this, that not only was Noah building the ark and following the instructions, but it says this, If he did not spare the ancient world, that's God, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here's what Peter is saying. All the while that Noah was building this ark, and if you look at the different Numbers that are out there, it's kind of like a hundred years if you do the math on different genealogies. Noah spending a hundred years building this ark of this size. Peter says he's not just building it, he's actually heralding. He's actually telling the people around him, either through his actions or through words that he's saying, of what it is that God is doing through this ark. It's not a a hidden surprise. You know, God hasn't said, okay, Noah, go like deep into the woods, deep in, where people aren't going to find you. Just go way in there, and then like secretly make this ark. This isn't like uh, Christmas, you know, when you're trying to like wrap gifts and keep them hidden from your kids, and you're like, it's going to be really good, but I don't want them to know about this. No, this is fully on display. Noah's out there, and he's heralding. He's talking about what God is up to here. He's telling the people. And it says that Noah was actually sustained through that because there would have been no doubt pressures and maybe even people just against him. But here is Noah heralding. But listen, listen. There is one door into the ark and there is one ark that will actually save people. It is a... In our kind of modern world, we would say it's a very exclusive message. It is very narrow. There is one arc, there is one door. Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, he, he has a, a section of one of the chapters where he talks about a Maclean's article that's titled, How Canadian Are You? That's what the article is talking about, How Canadian Are You? So it goes through all kinds of little details about, you know, being Canadian, and it says this, more than 30% of Canadians are most uncomfortable around evangelical Christians. Did you realize that? 30% of Canadians are most uncomfortable around evangelical Christians, a similar percentage as other untouchable people like drug addicts and child abusers. They also are in the 30% category, okay? Okay. There's your good news for the day, okay? If you're, just so you know, this is the Canadian environment that we live in, according to Maclean's, okay? And the reason for this, there might be many reasons as you would talk to people, but the reason for this in the article is this Canadian view, this anti, you know, just this view that Christianity is narrow minded and bigoted and seeing itself as the only way. And that just strikes at the core of Canadians' like disdain for it, that there could only be one exclusive way. And here we see, in the story of Noah and the ark, a context of people around there heralding the message, and once again, one way into the ark, and one way to be saved from this impending flood that is coming. But listen, if we think about this, we have to realize that exclusivity is not solely a Christian viewpoint. It is not solely a Christian characteristic. If you look at other religions of the world, be it Islam, Hinduism, all of them have aspects of exclusivity to them. If you go down the, the new you know, the most popular religion nowadays, which is politics, okay, both the the left side and the right side, the liberal and the conservative, whatever it is, both sides have aspects of exclusivity to them. Even if you go into, like, culture war topics, like environmentalism, abortion, anti-abortion, all these topics that we are not getting into this morning, okay, all of them have aspects of exclusivity to them. So this is not unique to Christianity, but Christianity is extremely clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament that there is one way. Salvation is through one way. And even when we look at Jesus and his teachings, Jesus, the the prophet and the teacher that almost every religion adores and and looks at, and even secular people say, man, Jesus, I'm down with him. Here's what Jesus says in John's gospel when he's teaching about who he is. And this is a teaching that he does in John chapter 10, verse 7. He says this So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8 All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Listen to verse 9 I am the door. This is Jesus speaking here. This is his teaching. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's like That's a way of saying you'll find thriving in your life. You'll find purpose and vision in your life. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is saying there this is an exclusive teaching here and it was just as radical in his day and people hated it just as much in his day but he says here's two messages of exclusivity from John's gospel. Here's what he's saying. I am the way and I am good. I am the way and I am good. That's what Jesus is teaching. So when we see in the story of Noah and the ark and we see, man, there is only one way and Noah is heralding this message, it is consistent with the rest of Scripture. That there's only one way where we can find fulfillment. There's only one way where we can find like relief from all the weight of the world that we're living in. It is through the person of Jesus, who is the exclusive way and is the good way. So, back to the ark. Okay, that was a little New Testament jump in there. Back to the ark. The ark is a moment of trust for those who are witnessing this and who are seeing it. It is a moment, to, they're not pointing to Noah and saying, Noah is the way. What they are putting their trust in as they enter into that ark is that God has found a way. God has brought salvation. And this is what Noah is preaching and is heralding. So God has a vision for us. God brings judgment. But finally, God has a promise. God has a promise. How do you think God feels about all this that's going on? Maybe that's not a question that you've asked yourself. How does God feel when he makes those kind of judgments and those kind of proclamations? We actually get a little glimpse in verse 6. So if you look up outside of the text that we read, you read in verse 6. It gives us this insight into how God is feeling about this situation. It says, "...the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart." It grieved him to his heart. That word grieved there can be translated pain. Maybe your translation even says that, this idea of pain. But it it literally means to suffer from emotional pain. And another, kind of going back to the original Hebrew means deep unfulfilled longing. Deep unfulfilled longing. Because sometimes we come to this text and we think when God is exercising his judgment here, when the flood is coming, like that he's sitting there in glee, just enjoying all that's happening here, seeing this kind of destruction. And what we actually see is that God sees this situation. He's experiencing this in real time with people, and it grieves him. He's not, he's not regretting that he's made people you can read the text and almost it can seem that way what he's regretting is how this whole thing is playing out how people are choosing to step outside of his vision for them and how this has now come to a judgment god is deeply unsatisfied with what he's actually seeing happen here and yet yet in that moment of pain an unfulfilled longing, we see here that God gives a promise to Noah and to his family and to all those who would trust in him in the coming centuries and years. In verse 18, here's the promise in the form of a covenant. It says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And he's speaking to Noah here. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. God says, I am covenanting with you, Noah. I am promising that everything that you have hoped for in me as you've been walking with me will come to be. God is making a covenant promise with Noah and all who would put their trust in him. Now listen, we put our Trust in all kinds of things that, that try to make promises for us. You know, maybe it's a career. The, the work that we're doing, we're just like hoping that that's going to bring satisfaction. It's going to bring success in our life. And we're just going to like hang on to that thing as long as possible. It's got all kinds of promises for us. We, maybe we'll do this with money, you know, and possessions, material things. All the, they promise to bring happiness. They promise to bring, like, a, a depth of fulfillment. And so we, like, chase after this promise. And what we discover, you know, if you have um, children or maybe you've got nieces and nephews, you've got these little ones, and you just, you wish as you see these little ones growing up that you could just kind of, like, pick them up and you could hold them and you could say, I'm, I'm going to promise that nothing is going to happen to you. You're going to be safe Life is going to be good. Like, that's what we want to do. We want to be able to promise those things. And and sometimes we even try our best to make that a reality. But we know, and the longer we live, the clearer it gets. We know that Ecclesiastes is right. Our lives are a vapor. And our promises are the same as our lives. They are vapors. They are good for a season. But they will not last the length of what we need them to last. But here we have, in the text, God making a promise. The one who is outside of time, the one who is outside of the troubles of this world, makes a promise. And in 2 Corinthians, it says those promises, those covenants that God had made, they actually find their totality in Jesus. Jesus is the one who proves that God is good on his word, that he can actually accomplish this. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. All the promises, the sin that affects our lives, the search for meaning that we are grasping and reaching for, the search for purpose and our place in this world, when it might be really hard to find it, all those promises find their fullness in Jesus himself. So, as we look this morning and as we think about what God did through the ark and through preparing Noah and his family to make this thing, just remember, all of it is pointing to Christ. All the promises that Noah was able to experience and taste, we can experience them and taste them as well in the person of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross to cover for our sins, and now through his life as he's been raised to life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this story, this amazing story that gives us a foundation for trusting in you, the one who can hold all promises in his hands securely. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, if there's someone here who's never put their trust in you for their place in this world, for Dealing with sin in their lives, Lord, I pray that today would be a day to put their trust in the one who carries his promises through to the end. And Lord, if there's a a believer here, a Christian here who's struggling, who's just finding it really hard to put their trust in you, God, through the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give them a sense of assurance of your goodness, your strength, and your ability to be mighty for your people. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.